Here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. How are you guys doing today? Hope you guys are enjoying your Sunday and thank you for spending the next hour with us. Yes. So we, Donnie and I are really excited about this show, but before, right before we um, start introducing our special guest today, Donnie, you have some, some shout outs. <laughs> I want you to just go into it. They know I love them. Um, you know, happy Valentine's Day. Yesterday is Valentine's yeah. Day. So we say happy Valentine's Day to everybody. We have Georgia and Aiken on right now and Hamad is on. Michelle, Grant, and just everybody from Omaha, Nebraska, you know, we just want to say hello and just tag people on this show today because it's going to be awesome. This is an awesome woman sitting in front of you guys today. This is going to be a humdinger and without further um, just tag people. <laughs> um, I, we, Donnie and I would like to welcome to the show research professor and author and director of Community Voices at Morehouse School of Medicine, the, our very special guest, Dr. Henri, Henri Monteith Treadwell. She's dedicated her life to working to improve access to primary health care for underserved communities here in the United States. She advocates for health policies as well as health services again here in the US. And one of the reasons why, why we're so excited to have her on the show today is in 1963, Dr. Treadwell, along with two other students, were the first African-Americans to register for classes at the United the University of South Carolina, and they were the first ones to do so since the Reconstruction period. So I'll let that one sink in for a minute. When she graduated in 1965, she was the first Black student to do so since, are you holding your seats? 1877. So I told y'all, I told y'all. So from 1877 to 1965, there was nothing. There was nada. She was the first. Um, she was helped by her aunts, her aunt, um, the civil rights activist Modesta uh, Simpson, and as well as the lawyer Matthew Perry Jr. Um, and she's also supported by the community. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Dr. Treadwell. Thank you so very much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so happy to have you on the show. You just have no idea. God. <laughs> wonderful. So, Donna, I'm going to have the first question to you. Well, I mean, my very first question is just, you know, how did it feel to be the, you know, you're you're the original Black Girl Magic. Yes. That you, you know, you coined that phrase without, you're the reason for Black Girl Magic. How did it, did it feel to be the first African-American period, not just the fact that you were a woman, just period, to enroll in USC? Because the men, they enrolled after you, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Well, the men, uh, I was the one who had the lawsuit. And so I was the one who was admitted. And then as the date for enrollment began, uh, approached, then Bob Anderson and James Solomon joined, and they also went in with me. But legally, my lawsuit was the one that opened the university. So my question to you is, what was it about USC's program? Because I believe you got your undergraduate degree in biochemistry, is that correct? Biology, yes. Biology. 
what was it about the biology program at that specific university that really appealed to you? I don't think that the program at the university appealed to me as much as the fact that why should I not be able to go to the university in the town where I lived? Why should I have to go away? So I don't think that the program was exceptional in that sense. It was really the idea that I was denied entry just because of my race. And I tell people, I've told people throughout the years, when I applied, had they just said, you can come on in, it'll be fine. They might never have seen me because there were many choices. But when you say no, simply because of my race, then that's a different matter. And that's what has to stand there. And that's what they told you. Yes, I was not admitted. I got the little letter that said, you will not be admitted. It was like two lines or something. And so that's when we went to uh, take the legal approach and file the lawsuit. Wow, so in, in every other way, you met all of our criteria, grades, everything else. It was literally just the color of your skin that kept you Absolutely. Up. When Absolutely. When I finally transferred in, um, I brought so many extra credits that I actually completed my college education in three years. So there was nothing that they could, in fact, it took me a while to tell them that I was going to enroll even after the judge had ruled that they had to in, admit me. And there, then the rumor was, well, maybe she doesn't want us to see her transcript. Maybe something's wrong with that. So, you know, there's always those rumors that go on. And it was kind of a delight to know that they had to really give me lots of credit for the courses I brought. So wait a minute. You was just this extremely smart person and they, went, and they had to deal with that. That's brilliant. Like I'm loving it. You was just this overly smart person and they trying to say, oh, she's ashamed of her credit. Yeah. Ashamed yeah. of her transcript. Yeah, you know, it's it's what happens to people of color and women so often people will try to underwrite and undervalue what you bring as opposed to let's wait and see and let's assume that all is well. And so you're climbing up a mountain that shouldn't be there simply because of your race and in some cases gender. Well, because I was going to ask you, this, is, this was the 60s. So I would imagine there weren't particularly many women enrolled in um, science programs, or what, we, what today we would call STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths. So you had that prejudice to overcome. Then you had the color of your skin. I mean, what, what was that like? Well, I think um, I grew up in a family that had historically worked on civil rights for so many years. My grandmother started a school for African-American or black children at that time, Negro children. Um, she started a church. My Aunt Majeska was a civil rights figure whose portrait now hangs in the South Carolina State Capitol. My mother filed a lawsuit to equalize pay for teachers in Richland County, black teachers and white teachers, and one. So in some ways, I was kind of walking on a path that my relatives and ancestors had laid out. And it felt 
natural. It felt, I had learned in watching them that you don't get distracted and you don't get angry and you don't get put off of your purpose. Um, if in fact you believe that what you're doing is the right step. Yes. So that brings to mind the, the phrase, keep your eye on the prize. Yep. Exactly. And you know, we I was taught see and don't see. So when people are doing things to distract you or say things, you know, let them go on. But you, if you don't see it, then they don't have too much to react to. <laughs> True. And it sounds like you come from a family that wasn't afraid to step up and, and say what was what. Absolutely not. It was a um, joyous experience for me as a young person, really, to sit and listen to them talk. And, you know, my aunt would come from Ku Klux Klan meetings and to hear her talk about it. So I really was um, schooled, immersed, embedded in the struggle long before I really understood what the struggle was. Donnie, did you have anything? You know me, I'm trying to post on other places because she needs to be, her story needs to be heard. Um, so, okay, <laughs> once, okay, so once you're in the school, what kind of, once they let you in, what kind of backlash did you get being in? Like, did you have to go through the same things as Ruby Bridges did? Did you have to be walked in with sheriffs? And, and how did that make you feel, you know, having to do those kinds of things because it's just amazing to me i think you guys your generation are the strongest generation ever that that whole generation and you know i get so sick and tired one of the reasons why i'm so excited that you're on here because i am tired of the i'm not my ancestor i can't stand that comment because if you were, then you would be a lot stronger than what you are today, you know, and, and you, 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 you've shown that you are one of those people that have shown that. So how did you, how did you feel if you had to be walked with sheriffs and things of that nature? I was, um, every day when I walked to class, I could see the officials, the law enforcement officers standing along the way. And so I knew that they were there to protect me. When I went into the university on that first day, it was a fairly controlled environment. And I think there's something about the state. They did not allow the press to be there to watch the actual enrollment. And in some ways, I think when people do things like that, they kind of want to keep it quiet. You know, maybe they'll come in and go away and then this will all be over. And um, it, I felt secure, though, because I think of my own sense of self, but I think um, I was also pretty much safe. We had had the usual threatening calls and the dynamite thrown in yards and things like that. Mm -hmm. so I was kind of used to anything could happen. And the description that I got of myself from one of the professors at that time was that 
my eyes were always scanning the crowd. I was always looking to see what was out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, a part of what I did as people talked about trauma and danger, it was, you know, I said, we're not gonna have that. It's just not going to happen. And there's no reason for it to happen. And I think it kind of took away some of the, um, those who wanted to start something, it was clear that we weren't gonna be baited and we weren't going to be afraid. So now the, the ultimate, the bottom line is that you do spend a lot of time alone and isolated because there aren't that many people around who want to be associated with you. But if you turn it on another, turn it on its head, it allows you to build your own strength and to build your own perspectives. And I think that's a part of what I took. I took away from the university much more than a degree. I took away the ability to really stand up and continue the fight for civil rights. I worry today because I think as many of our young children are going into schools that we think are the better schools, but they are being isolated, that they must be prepared. And we must be, we must acknowledge that they are entering foreign territory. And even today, when I go back to the university to speak or something, and if I give a speech, it's amazing that after the, the larger crowd is gone, there are always students who are white and black who come up and say, I really like what you said, but I can't say it in front of these people here because they will retaliate against me. Oh, so. Okay. Issues are still there, and it's not just the University of South Carolina. It's in other places too, where students will come up and say, "You know, it's just not friendly." It's not. So safe. you mean that happened recently? Like that's something that a couple of even years ago. A couple of years ago, and I, I relate these things to individuals who have the ability to act, but I'm not sure that people know that they are supposed to act. They express horror and you know concern, but um, how will we ever have a dialogue if people don't feel safe in having that dialogue? Yeah, absolutely. I'm also curious about what the the common areas were like in while you were a student. I mean, in terms of things like the cafeteria and the library and the women's room. I mean, were they segregated, or you have you had did you have freedom of movement? I have freedom of movement. Um, and I think after a short amount of time, you know, I would go to the cafeteria, you know, by myself, but that's okay. I, that was a part of, um, there, was, there were no restrictions. I think the concern was when I would have to go off campus or down a couple of blocks to a building, there was concern that I might not be safe. And that's when I really saw more law enforcement officers watching. But um, other than that, I was able to move around very freely. Well, and actually, it's, it's incredible that you had the fortitude and just, well, the fortitude, as you said, to keep your eye on the prize. And it sounds as though you didn't let any of that phase you. You just carried on being a student. Absolutely. Um, we had come so far that it was really, my job to get us to the finish line. And unfortunately, the, the two men who entered with me 
neither finished. And I think it was important that at least one of us got out of there with a degree. Now, they did not finish for different reasons. One, Bob Anderson was harassed terribly by the men on campus and some of the men on campus and Jim Solomon had a full-time job, a family, et cetera. So um, I think that probably those who might've hoped that we would go in and prove to them that we couldn't do it, um, I had that job to do and that's what I did. So you were the first person to, the first African-American to graduate from USC? The first African-American woman ever and the first African-American since the reconstruction. Hmm. So. I told y'all this was black girl magic. Didn't I tell y'all? I told you. <laughs> now, um, real quick, Brian, I wanted to answer Francine Starks. Yes. She did say, so basically we had a person named Francine who said, I thought that I heard you say that your aunt attended KKK meetings. How was she able to attend those meetings? And can you elaborate? But I don't want you to elaborate on that because this show is about you. I wanted to let Ms. Starks know that we will actually be doing a show about her aunt during Women's History Month. So I don't want, I didn't want Ms. Stark to think we were ignoring her, but in the same, you know, breath, I, I wanted to let her know. But this, this story is about you because you came from Black Girl Magic. You, we already know that. And you're, you're showing, you, you know, you, you're, just, you're just awesome. So I, I got to stop. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you so know, I, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead, please. No, I, I really think that, um, it's the importance of family, and I, I agree that we will spend time on Aunt Majeska later, is simply that was kind of my platform. You know, mm. And that's the reason that whenever I bring it up, it is to say to people, families must form that platform so that you know, the younger people will know that there is a next step and that they should take that step. So you've spoken a little bit about how your family has supported you. I'm also equally curious about how your local community supported you. Well, there were two or three ways. Um, there was a group that got together students from the university who were white students. And I would meet with them every couple of weeks, just so there would be a couple of people that I would know and you know, could kind of feel that if I needed to reach out to them, they were there. Um, the churches, Black churches, were particularly supportive. But I would say that one of the striking facts in that time was that not all of the Black community or the Negro community, whatever we were called at that time, were supportive of the integration of the university. True, because I've been, Donnie and I've had this conversation um, the other day and we chatted a little bit about it before we went live. I don't know why the question kind of came to me, well I kind of do, but I don't want to get into it on the show, about whether or not the, you know, were all Black Americans supportive of what was happening during the Civil Rights Movement? They were not, and um, I, 
I would get phone calls from um, Blacks who were just very exercised about my going to the university. One, maybe it needed to be done, but probably didn't. But if it did, it didn't need to be me. Um, I don't, you know, I just never really peeled back the layers on that onion because I was on a mission by then. Um, the other concern that people had seemingly, as I've learned throughout the years is they felt that it would affect enrollment at the historically black colleges and universities in the city and around the state. Well, you know, that's something that really had nothing to do with the fact that were we going to extend racism forever so that we would not make all of these institutions open and perhaps the HBCUs could reach out to other types of students too. So that was, that was a tough one because I really was not speaking, doing this to harm the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities. But um, there were some who felt that way and they did not see the bigger picture of everything needs to be open and then people can choose. And lots of people chose to enroll in the university over the years. So um, I don't know why we don't get on the same page because it harms us as we try to move forward. I, I don't know. So that, that actually brings something to me because it was something else that Brian and I was talking about um, a couple of days ago. We were discussing how the black community doesn't stand with each other um, and how, it, you know, I think Brian said it, it's ingrained in our DNA, but I, I felt like, well, no, I don't think so because people did more together then than they do now. Do you see a difference in how African-Americans are from your time and where they are today? Because I mean, I, I, my personal opinion is, I don't understand why we, why we don't stand together anymore like you guys did, like our ancestors did who were enslaved, like our free people of color did who had to do other things. You know, I don't, I feel like they were closer knit back then. So what are your thoughts? I believe we have, we have, we had a drink, a big drink of the Kool-Aid about who was not worthy. And, you know, if I just look at the work that I have done throughout the years, particularly um, in my access to care, how did we sit silently and allow so many of our men and increasingly women to enter prisons as a result of racist systems mm. and not say anything. You know, it didn't, and, and I tell you, and people may not like my saying it, but in the meetings that I would go to where advocates were talking about how do we turn this around, they were mainly and perhaps only white people and me who were talking about this. Now, I think, and this is where I say people maybe drank the Kool-Aid, they were made afraid about those others over there, or it wasn't popular. And I was told it wasn't popular to look at even just the issue of African-American men. And you said, you've chosen the wrong group if you wanna start some advocacy 
you need to work with seniors or something like that. I think that we simply have not given ourselves um, the time to reflect on how we did do so well in the past when we were doing more together than the isolation that we now have. And in fact, don't put very much behind in a group sense, the issues that are going on. I don't mean to be critical, I'm just making an observation, but I'm also perhaps saying we need to think through this a bit more and figure out how we can do more for ourselves. Nobody's going to save us for us but us. That's all there is to it. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I, I thank you for answering that because my whole, you know, Brian, when Brian and I would have that conversation, I would, uh, I never said drink the Kool-Aid, but that's it, Brian, they drank the Kool-Aid, <laughs> you know, and, and, but that's what it is. They took a big heaping gulp of that. And I, I feel like it happened. That Kool-Aid was finally swallowed around the mid seventies when they just felt like, you know what, I'm about as equal as I'm going to get. And we're going to go, we're going to, you know, we all can do the same thing. And it just kind of went downhill from there. And we've been going downhill ever since. And um, yeah, we all have our stereotypes. You know, we, we have, you know, I have them. I've had to catch myself sometimes when a young black man would approach me in a dusk, you know, in the evening. And I'd say, oh my goodness. And then I have to stop myself. And in one case, the young man said, I just want some directions to the bus station. You know, and I'm thinking there's danger there. So we've been, you know, we've soaked that up and we've got to get rid of it. I do want to go back to a couple of incidents you've asked me at the, about at the university because I, I really want people to know how trivial and trite some of these things were, but also the response. When I lived in the dormitory my first year, the uh, young ladies across the hall would always bring food or something, leave it outside my door and then knock on my door throughout the evening. And I would just open the door and kick it down the hall. Finally got tired of it and went over there and knocked on their door and told them to stop. And they did. On the other hand, I would get calls from white men inviting me to parties and okay. that wouldn't stop. And I eventually said, I've got to stop this. So I said, okay, I'll come. And I went and I went only to see who was there. And they wanted me to drink, to do whatever. And within a few minutes I left. But you see, I found that, and I think this is what, what my point is, that you really have to face things in order to make them better or to make them go away. You can't. Be, be the victim or be the one that says, I wish they wouldn't call me because mm. I never had another call from that group after I went to their fraternity party or whatever kind of party it was. And I, you know, the, the little items were not left outside my door. So I think I'm trying to say for a lesson in life, face it, and then it doesn't really grow into something that becomes harmful. So for the benefit of the audience, because I, I think I know what was behind the food thing, but in, in your own words, what was behind the girls leaving food outside your door? 
Uh, I think it was kind of to denigrate me, you know, all these poor, hungry black folk, you know, they need this. That, that was the, the message I took from it, you know, and uh, it, it, it made no sense. And once I faced it, it stopped. But I will tell you, it went on for a while until I finally said, I just need to go over here and knock on their door. And of course, they didn't open the door, but I gave them a speech through the door. And then that was the end of it. So, okay, I have a question. Um, you, you talked about it was lonely. Given COVID and where we are right now with COVID, everybody's in the house and people are suffering with, you know, depression rate is going up, suicide rates are going up and all of that other stuff. This is what I mean by strength. You that was something that never crossed your mind. You just had to do your work, and that was it. How did you um, deal with the loneliness then? And then, at some point, did you ever make friends with anyone there that you, you know, did you just ever make friends with anyone? I by doing what I needed to do, and I just one foot in front of the other and I did live in Colombia where my family was so it wasn't that I was cut off from everyone. Um, I think um, that I did make some good friends, some of whom are my dear friends today. One of uh, the people that I made friends with was actually a maid of honor in my wedding and we continue to be very close today. So, and there are others who reach out and um, want to be in touch. Some of people have written and said, I wish I had had more courage when you were there. And, and I have to be understanding of that because the peer pressure is terrible. However, in today's environment, I hope people won't hesitate to reach out and to somehow build some linkages and connections so that we can all move forward together. You know, it's, it's not easy, but out of isolation can grow strength. If in fact, you don't decide that it's only me and I am over here um, being trapped by something. I think you have to say, I will make use my time well. And I'm like everyone else right now. I read, I type. I play bridge, I do whatever. And so we have to really make ourselves find something useful in that time. And I didn't, um, you know, I was in the debate club for a while. You know, I did things even on campus that put me into contact with people, even though, um, you know, we weren't close. So after you graduated from the University of South Carolina, I mean, you went on to, to Atlanta and then to, uh, was it Boston University or Harvard? I went to Boston University for a master's and then Harvard for postdoc. I received my doctoral degree at Atlanta University mm -hmm. in, in Atlanta. And um, then after the postdoc at Harvard, I went to the Kellogg Foundation oh, to work for 17 years. So what was it like studying in Boston? Com you know, compared to South Carolina, what was it like studying there? Certainly a lot more friendly, a lot more open, a lot more freedom. Um, make no mistake, I, 
I knew that I could not wander the streets in South Carolina in Columbia as I could in Boston. You know, wow. you, you just know that you are a potential target. And so um, it was good to be able to interact with diverse groups in Boston and just meet people as friends as opposed to even simply we're meeting together so that we can help you get through this crisis of integration. You know, it was really then a more human level of contact and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Some great friends. So was there, was there this is my last one. Is there, was there any sense of stress? Because I mean, it, it really does sound as though when you were there, especially the, maybe that first year, that the University of South Carolina was almost like enemy territory. Or maybe not enemy territory, but certainly hostile territory. Did that carry any kind of stress for you? Well, if it did, um, I did not acknowledge it as such. I think I simply kept my um, wits about me and surveyed my environment wherever I was to make sure that I was moving in the right direction, whether I'm walking somewhere or shopping. You know, I recall going shopping in Columbia with one of my friends who happened to be white at the university. And one of my aunts came by and hustled me into a car and back to campus. So, you know, there were those moments when you forget that you, when I forgot that I was a target, but I did not let it get to me. I, um, I think I was just blessed because I was not going to, you know, you have to decide this, this is not going to get me. I'm going to get it if, mm -hmm. it, if anything has to be gotten, but it's not going to get me. And so I was rather calm about it. And I think that that um, is a part of what made me safe because I did not respect, react or respond in any way that exhibited fear or anger or anything. I simply went about my business. And when asked whether I thought the students would not want me at the university, my response was in an article was, why would they not want me there? I just want to get an education. So when I respond in that way, there's, you know, it makes it, you know, like, uh, I'm just going to study like they are. Why? So you kind of diffuse it. So the way that you describe it, it just, it just kind of strikes me that it's kind of the, the lived Black experience in America, just in microcosm on a specific university campus. Because we have, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives, we have to have that awareness um, going out and about in, in our surroundings. And based on what you've just said, it, it just sounded as though that was just really a condensed experience for you. Yeah. I believe that you're right. It was, it was everything that we face now. And, you know, if we think that when we leave the university environment and go to work in corporate America or something, that you don't face some of the same issues, then you will not be as successful because you have to also learn how to keep your counsel, keep your wits about you, keep calm and move on, keep your goals in mind. And um, so it, it was absolutely a condensed, it, it's the same thing. It is still the same. 
So just to give a, a recap to some of the newcomers coming onto the show, this is Dr. Henri Treadwell, and she is the first woman, African-American woman and African-American to graduate from the University of South Carolina. She was the, um, she integrated the school. Uh, we had one person up here who was kind of responding to you as if you were talking now, but we're, we're, we're speaking back during the civil rights era. So for this show right here, you guys, and for the shows that's coming, we're not really focused on genealogy that much. However, we always throw genealogy in, but this is Black History Month, and we really want to just start giving you the stories, the untold stories of our heroes and um, just those that came, you know, came up before us and can give us information about who, what we, what they went through and the things that you saw, those videos that you saw during the civil rights moment. This is someone who actually lived it. So to answer your question, this is Dr. Henri Treadwell. She is the first African-American woman and the first African-American all around to integrate the University of South Carolina. She is the reason why Black Girl Magic exists. I'm gonna say that for the rest of my life. <laughs> and, 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 and that's what it is. So I, I just wanted to, you know, clear that up. So to, uh, throw in a, to throw in a genealogy related kind of question. So I know in my own time, times of, of struggles or when things have been exceedingly difficult, you know, I can feel my ancestors kind of, they're there for me to kind of not necessarily cushion me from the, the tough time, but to, to help me get through it, to give me the strength and the fortitude to get through it. So with you, Dr. Treadwell, I mean, you, have an, you had an amazing family that was really strong and, and very supportive, but did you ever get a sense that your ancestors were also kind of there quietly behind the scenes supporting you? Absolutely. I think that um, the, the building blocks were established long before I was even a thought in that family. They were... Um, strong people. My grandfather, who I never knew, he died early, um, had bought property far outside of the city because he didn't want his daughters to be drawn into service because his mother worked in service and was became pregnant by her white master. Um, my ancestors are the reason I think that I was able to move on. I never questioned whether or not I should be on the path. My grandmother walked from Orangeburg, South Carolina, Columbia to get away from bad situation and then began, a, raised her family of seven, eight children and again, started a school and started a church and she taught us so much about family. Um, there were, there is a branch of the family in Colombia, the Monteith family that is white. And you know, this, the sire is, you know, a common sire. They, some of them are very, have been very supportive of what we were doing. Others, not so, but in terms of those from the African-American or black side of the family back from, I can't go 
to be on Sarah, my great great grand, maybe yeah, great great grandmother, um, further back. And I think that's one of the tragedies and why I think programs like this are so valuable because we really can't track ourselves very easily. And, you know, I do ancestry and other things. I find more whites who let me know that we are related, which makes me wonder if they're whites, but, you know, it just kind of, um, the tentacles are there. The pathway is there. I would never have a choice to do anything except what I did because of the strength given to me by uh -huh. ancestors. This is not something that you do on your own. This is something you do building on the legacy of your family. And what I would hope is that each of us continues to infuse that legacy forward. I try to do everything I can to get my children and my grandchildren. My children are okay, the grandchildren, to know what the struggle has been. And my little granddaughter, when I went to a program at the University of South Carolina, and uh, she sat there and she saw it, and on the way back home, she said, I wanna do something like what Grand did. Mm. And that's the thing I think we have to do. It's very important where we come from, but it's equally important and maybe more so in these days to think about where we're going and how we get there. And we get there through our children. So children, whether they're ours or not. So, but would you want your granddaughter to have to go through what you went through during that time period? I mean, that was such a rough time. I would not want her to go through that, but I want her to look into society and to see what it is that is not functioning well for some groups and in her case, African-Americans. And what can you do? What can you contribute? You know, I think about the University of South Carolina as a place where people I went to grade school with there went and received their master's degrees and doctorate degrees, et cetera. And the question, and, and so that made a lot of difference to them. You know, I helped them get their master's degree. Mm -hmm. Now the question is, will anybody ever look and see, all right, you benefited from her crossing that path. Who's benefited? What are you doing now? And I'm not suggesting that they're not doing it, but I'm suggesting that there is always something and we know that in Black History Month, as well as in every other month, we are in dire straits in some of our communities and we really must work. So I do not want my granddaughter to have to endure what I endured, but I can't guarantee that she won't given the political climate that we sometimes experience. Well, actually you said it beautifully because the struggle is far from over and the achievements and the rights that we have gained can just as easily be taken away. In 2020 and 2021, it brought that into sharp relief. So I would hope that your story and stories like yours would inspire children of 
of your grand, you know, your granddaughter's age to say, okay, so the, the fight continues, but because I know my grandmother and people like my grandmother, they did, they achieved, they, they fought the good fight and they won. I can do that. People around me can do that. You know, I think young people ha having that belief is a really important thing. So I have another question for you because I need to clear this guy up that's on this on here. Mm -hmm. um, affirmative action was not around when you started. Am I correct? You're correct. That's there right. was no such thing as affirmative action. There was so everything to keep you out of here action. Yes. So everything that you went through, because I think he's not understanding the time period of where you were. Now, I'm not going to ask the certain questions or respond necessarily give you the stuff that he's saying, but I do want you to be able to address these things that he's talking about without you really knowing and seeing what he's saying. Um, you integrated because he came in late. As Brian was saying, you integrated the USC. You were the first African-American woman to integrate USC after the Reconstruction era. And she was That's the first Black student to graduate from there since 1877. So all of this was well before affirmative action. Everything that you have gone through, everything that you have traveled through was well before all of these different things. I need for people to be able to give flowers to those who are supposed to have them. And Ms. Treadwell, Dr. Treadwell, you are supposed to have your flowers without you. any question. Thank you know, you. And, and, and I don't, I don't, he's kind of angering me, but I'm, I'm trying to keep it, you know, I'm trying to be a, a big girl like you. <laughs> I'm trying to be a big girl because Maybe this, this show. Maybe this might help the, the gentleman in the audience. Is when Dr. Treadwell, Treadwell applied to the USC in 1965. Sorry, 1963. She her applicant, even though she met all the academic criteria, her application was rejected because she was black. There was a lawsuit which she won, so that she could be able to attend the University of South Carolina. That, that's it in a nutshell. There was no I mean, nothing. Nothing. These, this was before. This is she's the reason why affirmative action possibly came into play. So, with that being said, again, black girl magic at its finest, at its best, respected. That's that's all I need. I need for people to respect it because this is someone who made stuff possible for you to do what you needed to do. She she is a history maker. She was a history maker. She lived history. Respect it. You know that those are the things that that I want. And I also wanted to ask you: Did you get the opportunity to? No, it was when did when did Martin Luther King pass? Well, when did he was murdered? 65? I'm trying to remember. Because did you get a chance to meet him? Yes, I did, actually. I wow. went to um, some meetings in South Carolina, and I was very fortunate to be able to hear him speak and to meet him. And many of the other civil rights leaders, this was the time of unrest. This was the time of moving forward. There were no open doors. You know, my friends were those who were 
integrating high schools and things in South Carolina. So this was a difficult time, but a very rich time in history. It took, you know, the, the civil rights, the lawsuit was actually filed in 61. It took two years for it to get through the courts. And I, because it was appealed all the way to the South Carolina Supreme Court. So this was a step to open a door. Those doors have sort of closed, but I will say this, the University of South Carolina was for a time, one of the most successfully integrated schools in terms of numbers in the nation. So there evidently was a need. that evidently filled a need that people had in order to seek an education. And so um, I think that we, I agree with your comments. We need to be concerned about the things that are real and that are affecting us today. And not, as I said, I don't get distracted because um, that doesn't get me anywhere. Yeah, I have to be like you. I'm not there yet. <laughs> You're wonderful. <laughs> hey, you don't you don't know me on my days when I'm like you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> not there yet. I'm just not that big of a girl yet. Yeah, I can say that you you repaid with the fortitude and support that you that you received because you know, you've taken that experience. You're breaking up, Brian. You just froze on us. Oh, did I? Am I back? Am I back? You're back to me. Okay. So if, I guess in my estimation, you've taken that whole experience, you've taken the education that you, know, you fought for and, and you, you achieved, you know, and you're paying that forward because you really are a big advocate around healthcare for underserved and marginalized communities. So I think that that's a beautiful way of kind of paying back to for, for all of that effort. You know, um, when we think about the health issues that our communities faced in those days, tuberculosis, um, my family, many of them were engaged in working against that epidemic. We lost families to the sanatoriums. One whole branch of my family disappeared. And whenever I asked about it, they said, well, they go into those sanitariums, the records weren't kept, and they never came out. So yes, I felt that health was a way of continuing to strengthen our communities. And I have been blessed with the ability to work and to actually move issues forward. We now are concerned about the health of poor men of color in this nation. And that's really, those are doors that without question, I was fortunate to be able to open did the first scientific journal on the health of poor men of color. So what I did at the university didn't just stop there. It was a part of a pathway that continues and from poor men to mental health, to prisons, to prison health, all of those things are still on my agenda and I will continue to work on them as long as I'm here because we, have no time to waste. Donnie, I feel as though you're reading my mind at this point. It's fascinating that you that you mentioned that um, about tuberculosis, because when we were Donnie and I were researching some of our family members, we kept seeing this on death certificates, pellagra, 
And we didn't know what that was. We actually had to go and, and look it up. <laughs> and again, it was a, it's a vitamin deficiency. Donia, is it vitamin D that they're deficient in? Vitamin D, yes. Yeah, yeah. vitamin D. And apparently, it was, you know, and it's so funny because I actually have that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's genes travel forward, right? Yeah, yeah, I have that vitamin D deficiency. Yeah, but it was just really interesting. Go ahead, Brian. It was affecting, it was affecting their whole community. Um, again, so not tuberculosis, but another disease that is associated with poverty that was um, that was just widespread. Like I said, it just intrigued us, so we had to go and look up what it what it actually was. Yeah, I think um, you know I remember working uh, after the university in communities where there was no water and working to get water systems put in and homes repaired. I track all of that back to the time of reflection that I had at the University of South Carolina. When you talk about how do you use your time when you're isolated and don't have friends, mm -hmm. you think about the things that need to be done and you reflect again on your history and on what your ancestors did and how they contributed and therefore what you can do as you move on. And I'm, I'm happy that I received the Order of the Palmetto from the state of South Carolina, the highest honor that they can give, because it does say that people do recognize the work that I've done. I also have to say the work is unfinished. I lived in a dormitory called Sims Dormitory. Sims was a gynecologist who experimented on African-American women without the benefit of anesthetics. Why would yeah. you become a women's dormitory after that person? And then why was I living in a place named after someone like that? And I'm, I'm still kind of working on that, you know? So you, you have their thing. Are you working to get the name change? It's being worked on. Advice. Yes. You, you <laughs> she to. said, "Be advised." <laughs> oh, I get phone calls. I'll put it that way. <laughs> it's just been such a pleasure talking with you. Are you still there? Are you still with us? Okay. I'm here. I'm yeah. here. It's just been such a pleasure talking with you. One of our um, one of our uh, audience members pointed out the fact that. You, were, you are considered a science rock star. So that means we need to have you back to talk about your science and what you've done as far as your work in biology. And, and you know, we definitely need to have, you're going to be back on the third time. It's already in the books. <laughs> I am happy to contribute in any way that I can. This has been very, very enjoyable because we've been able to simply exchange information and ideas in an informal way. And hopefully uh, some of what I have had to say resonates with some who are on, who are listening. Um, you're doing great work. You are really allowing us to think about ourselves in more ways than one. It's not one dimensional, but on several dimensions. And I thank you and commend you. Oh, we thank you too. Yes, we do. And conversations like these and histories like yours are really important to, to discuss because, I mean, I, I have a feeling that 
the next couple of years are going to be a, a dark struggle. They really, okay. really are. Um, and if we can find inspiration from the past and the present for those, you know, for those difficult conversations and political battles, then um, I think we'll be all the better for it. I would agree. But we have to be honest about where we came from and what and what it's taken to even mm -hmm. us, to get us here. And don't get distracted by the small stuff. Look at the big issues out there. Don't yes, sweat the small Go stuff. After. I should get that on a t-shirt. Just don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again, Dr. Treadwell. If you want to yeah. stay on for a while after we go off, you can. Um, but thank you again for you know, just really sitting here and enlightening us and blessing us because for me, it, this, I'm not speaking for everybody else. I'm I'm speaking for myself because I feel like I'm sitting in front of you with my legs Indian style right now. So it's just <laughs> listening to the stories because I love it. And, and you know, I've become history, a history person because of genealogy and you mentioned Orangeburg, South Carolina. So I need to ask you some questions about that. <laughs> Oh, there are some stories. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, but I'm I'm just, I appreciate it. Um, I want to let everybody know that next week, next Sunday, we will be um, discussing talking with the Buffalo Soldiers and learning about what they did, how, you know, how they came about, and just, you know, just still just narrating our own story, something that we don't do. And we're going to know. Mm -hmm. um, also where you can find Buffalo Soldier related records, um, more about their history, their, their service, the service records that are attached to it. Mm -hmm. And they offer different things. They, you know, they have museums, they have, you, they have, uh, they have, um, what is the word that I'm looking for? Where they have character, they talk about different characters and and things of that nature. Hopefully we'll be able to pull one in for you guys. Um, I'm trying, but I'm trying. That's all I can say. <laughs> you know, but we're trying to get that done where women or men and women did certain things, who they were and how they came about. So again, thank you so much. Look out for that, guys. And thank you so much, Dr. Treadwell, for being on the show. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you. I'll stay on for a couple of minutes. So for all of you watching us, wherever you're watching us, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thank you for spending this hour with us. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. You guys have an awesome day. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's. <laughs>